Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hi everyone, it's your Afro Verdict host Victor Anakin, and today we are going to talk about witches. Yep, you absolutely heard right. Superstition, spirits and witchery are quite widespread beliefs across the African continent and while every person has the right to their own belief system, at times this could take a turn south. In northern Ghana, for example, there are five so-called witch camps where, according to Amnesty International, about 500 mostly elderly women and children stay as they are exiled from their homes due to accusations of witchcraft. In July 2023, a bill was drafted aimed at protecting these people accused of witchcraft. To help me unpack this delicate and complicated issue of where human rights and traditional beliefs overlap, I'm joined by Professor John Azuma, Executive Director of the Sane Institute in Accra, an academic institution committed to nurturing a culture of interfaith and interdisciplinary research, as well as Lam Natu Adam, Executive Director at Song Taba, an NGO committed to the realization of the aspirations and rights of women and children in Ghana. Let's go. Mr. Azuma, welcome to Afro Verdict. Please uh, be so kind as to give our audience a brief introduction. Yeah, my name is uh, John Azuma. I am the executive director of the Sunny Institute in Accra, Ghana, uh, in West Africa. It is my absolute pleasure to have you join me today, sir. A bill to protect the people that were accused of witchcraft was passed back in July. However, it hasn't been ratified by the president just yet. In your view, how does the general public in Ghana perceive this initiative? And what could this bill effectively change? Yeah, the bill was three years in the making. Uh, Civil society organizations led by our institute campaigned for the bill to be passed against witchcraft accusation in Ghana, which is affecting uh, older women and some have been beaten and some have been banished and driven out of their homes and some have been killed. Uh, so the bill, we believe, uh, when signed into law by the president, will really send a very strong signal, first of all, to the Ghanaian society and secondly, to the international community that such beliefs and practices have no place in the, in the 21st century. That is what we are hoping, and we will also use the law to educate the general public, and that uh, will help minimize and eradicate this practice, this belief and practice from Ghanaian society for good. That is our hope. All right. You know, while the belief in witchcraft is not a phenomenon that is unique to Ghana, the practice of witch camps for women, unfortunately, is. So how would you explain the emergence of this practice in Ghanaian society? Yes. That is very true. The belief in witchcraft is quite widespread in across Africa, in many other societies in Asia, uh, and many places. But when it comes to the camps, Ghana is very unique. Now, the camps started mainly as refuge centers where the women will go to for refuge. Uh, some also started mainly because the camps are started around shrines, traditional shrines, that the women, they will take the women to these shrines to determine whether they are actually witches. Uh, and when they go to these shrines and the women are determined not to be witches, they will be able to go back home. 
But over time, people began to become very difficult. And even when the women are said not to be witches, they will still threaten them. They will still uh, uh, feel that if they come back to their communities, they will be harmed. And therefore, out of fear, the women stay in the camps. And sometimes too, they abandon them there. They threaten them, if you come back home, we will harm you. So the camps started as a safe haven, but the camps are no longer safe havens. They are open prisons. They are places of exploitation and of dehumanization of these women. That is why we want them closed down as soon as possible. You know, it's terrible that these victims of witchcraft accusations face complete alienation and exclusion from their communities. And basically, they have no other choice but to live in these witch camps. With efforts being made by the government and the human rights organizations, how long do you believe will this practice remain in effect in Ghana? Yeah, we are with the bill. Uh, the bill says that the camps should be closed down three years after the bill comes into effect. The situation is a little bit complex on the ground because we cannot just go and close the camps today and tell the women to go home tomorrow. Some of the women have been there for many decades. Some of them have no families to return to. Some of them are very weak and infirm. They cannot provide for themselves. <clears throat> they are in the camps and other women who are stronger are supporting them. So uh, if we close the camps immediately and said everybody go home, not everybody has a home to go to. That is why we are saying that three years time, uh, the camps will be gradually phased out. Those women who can go home will go home. Those that cannot go home can be settled in different communities. And those that are too weak to take care of themselves will have to provide alternative shelters for them. All of that will take time. And that is why we are giving the camps three years after the bill is signed for the camps to cease to operate. You know, Ghana is a country that has a very rich and vibrant uh, cultural heritage with many traditional religious beliefs being a part of it. In your opinion, how can you then achieve a balance between restricting some outdated and inhumane practices while at the same time preserving the heritage of the people? Very important question. Ghanaians are very religious and Ghanaians don't joke with their traditions and culture. At the same time, our Ghana is a democratic country. We have a constitution uh, that, is, uh, that, that the country is governed by. And that constitution says that all harmful customs and traditions and practices must be abolished. Because this and witchcraft accusation is one of the harmful cultural practices and traditions. Uh, nobody is saying that you don't believe in witchcraft. If you, if it's a belief that you have, that is fine. But when you accuse somebody, when you cross the line to accuse somebody of witchcraft, that is where the law will deal with you. So the law is very carefully uh, set up and it will be very carefully applied only to the accusations. It is not to the belief. If you hold your belief, and then you believe that somebody wants to harm you through witchcraft, and you can go to your room and pray and work on it spiritually, that's fine. But if you want to physically attack somebody or drive them out of their community or accuse them and, and humiliate them publicly, the law will deal with you. 
That is the balance that the law is seeking to strike. You know, I'm pretty sure that the women accused of practicing witchcraft often have no way of contesting these groundless accusations. In your experience, what do these women who move to the witch camps actually believe in? Yeah, they have no... When the moment the accusation is leveled against you, you are on your own. Sometimes even your family members, your own children will not come to your support because of the fear. Because they said, well, we don't know whether you are a witch or not. And so we cannot defend you. So the moment you are accused, you are literally on your own. And when the women get to the camps, they are literally abandoned there. They have no one to support them. The camps do not provide for them. Uh, They are just there. They have to fend for themselves. Their family members, in many cases, don't even visit them. They don't call them to check in on them. The majority of cases, it's only when the women die that the family members will go and collect their body and go and bury and perform the funeral. So it is a very terrible situation. And in the camps, the women go through all kinds of exploitation, uh, sexual exploitation. They are attacked by the communities around. Sometimes the, the camp owners use the women for free labor and for sexual uh, uh, exploitation also. So the women go through a lot in the camps. And the women are trapped there because the home is not safe for them. The camps are not safe for them, but they are between the rock and the hard place. And that is why they, are, they have nowhere, what, no uh, alternative but to stay in the camps. Could you perhaps share with our listeners some of the particular stories of how women ended up having to live in these witch camps, you know, from your practice? Yeah. So what happens in these places is that in, part, in some in cases, most of the cases, the accusation starts from the family. It's the family member that will accuse another family member of witchcraft. And when that happens, there will be a, a discussion in the family And in some cases, there will be some violent attacks and the woman, mostly it's a woman, she will run away and, 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 and go to the camps to seek, to seek shelter. In other cases, they will drive the woman, take her by force to the, to the camps where the shrine is. And at the shrine, they will perform a ritual. In most cases, if this ritual involves the slaughter of a chicken. They will cut the head of a chicken and they will throw the chicken down and the dead, the chicken will struggle. And if the chicken ends up on its stomach, then the woman is deemed to be a witch. If the chicken ends up on its back, then the woman is deemed not to, uh, to, be, to be innocent. But as I said earlier, even when the woman is deemed to be innocent, the people, the accusers, will still insist that she, she cannot come back home. They still believe that she's a witch. And so the woman is abandoned there. Uh, in some one case in particular, a lady that I met in the camp told me her husband died and left her with her small young boy who was about four years old. This widow took care of this child, sold everything that she has, put the child in school, put the child through school up to nursing school, and the child completed became a nurse, and the child became a drunk. He was a drunkard and went to see a traditional uh, soothsayer. And the soothsayer told the child that it is the mother who has used witchcraft to make the boy a drunkard. 
And so the boy was looking for her own mother to kill and attack the mother. And the mother was rescued by neighbors. And she had to flee to go to the camps. This is a woman who took care of her own son, carried her in the stomach for nine months, took her, uh, care, care of her and him alone after the husband died. And now this, this boy, in now an adult, a worker, turns against the mother and accuses her of witchcraft and wanting to kill her. This is, this is how tragic the cases can be. And this is how some of the women end up in the camps. These uh, poor women who find themselves in these witch camps are marginalized by their communities and are then forced to live in terrible conditions and in complete isolation from the outside world. You've already touched upon the subject, but what dangers are there for them if they decide to return to their communities one day? How can they be reintegrated back into the society? Yes. The, the witchcraft accusation is so dangerous in the sense that when you are accused of witchcraft, it can be extended to your own children and to your grandchildren. In many cases, because they believe that the witchcraft is hereditary and that you can pass it on to your children. So when a woman is accused of witchcraft, first of all, she will live with the stigma for the rest of her life. Ostracized. A lot of uh, 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 people uh, say nasty things about her. And that is just the mild side. The severe side is what we've talked about, the attacks and even the murders, and they're driving them away from their homes. Uh, but apart from that, your children can also be accused after that. So the stigma is generational. And some of the things they go through, uh, when they, they, the reasons why they are afraid to go back home, is because their belief is still strong. It's still very much there. So what we are hoping to do with the reintegration is that when the law comes into effect, we can use the law because sometimes you need a deterrent. When people know that there are consequences of their actions, they, they are very careful. So the law is to help with that, to let them know that, look, there are consequences if you attack people, if you accuse people, you'll be taken to court, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be put before the law and you'll be held accountable. That will put some fear in a lot of people. And with the women go back home, uh, it will help them to be able to live back in their communities safely. And then we will combine that with education. But as I said earlier, some of the women may not even be allowed to go back home. It may not be safe for them to go back home. So we'll settle them in other communities where they will be safe and they can get their lives back. And as I said, finally, those that are weak and old and cannot do anything for themselves, we hope to be able to put up safe uh, temporary places for them that we can take care of them in these shelters. So that these are the ways that we plan to reintegrate the women back into the society. Professor John Azuma, thank you for joining me on the Afro Verdict podcast and sharing these details with our listeners. Now, let's welcome Ms. Lamnato Adam, Executive Director at Songtaba, a non-governmental organization committed to the realization of the aspirations and rights of women and children in Ghana. Ms. Lamnato, thank you for joining me today on Afro Verdict. For starters, would you please take the opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, thank you very much for the opportunity. My name is Lamnatsu Adam. I work for Songtaba. Songtaba is a 
Women's Rights Advocacy Organization uh, based in Ghana. And I'm the executive director. This bill uh, to protect the people that are accused of witchcraft that was passed back in July. Uh, what is the opinion of the general public in Ghana on this? Well, I think that um, witchcraft accusation has been quite rampant, especially in northern Ghana. Uh, that has caused a lot of women vanished from their homes and some have to lose their life and sometimes their property. So out of the several advocacy that we have been doing with other partners, the bill was finally passed. Uh, actually, the bill was led by some private members in parliament. That was led by Honorable Francis Susu. So with the passage of the bill, like you said, it's yet to get the presidential assent. But I think we had some quite quite mixed feelings. I mean, um, I'll say that the general pub public were quite excited that at long last we had a bill specifically looking at issues around witchcraft. But some actors, again, were questioning. Because if you look at the bill, it even talks about anybody who is naming anybody who is by whatever means saying somebody is a witch. And you know, these are quite traditionally and culturally deep-seated. And um, issues of witchcraft are usually tried by ordeal. And so it came with a mixed feeling. But generally, I can say that people were excited about, about the bill. Look, you've worked with uh, many women uh, in, in Ghana, especially in northeastern Ghana, right, through your organization. Um, how would you explain the emergence of the practice of these witch camps in, in Ghana? How did this even come into existence, in your opinion? I think the belief in witchcraft has have quite been deep-seated. Um, in several centuries, people believe in witchcraft. You know, people believe that there's a spirit that you can use to to do other things. For example, it is believed that, especially if a man has some superpowers, it is believed that he uses those superpowers to protect his family, to protect his communities. But if a woman is believed to have those superpowers, then the woman uses it to, 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 to do, to destroy. I mean, for destruction purposes. And so there's, there's belief in the supernatural, you know, the, the, the only difference is that as people believe in witchcraft, there are quite a number of people who think that, yes, even as we believe in witchcraft, we don't support the way people who are suspected of being witches are being treated, you know. So the belief is, is quite deep-seated in Ghana. It's not anything new to us. The victims of witchcraft accusations, they mostly face alienation and complete isolation from their communities where they're from. And uh, obviously, then they have no other chance but to, to leave and relocate to these witch camps. You know, thanks to organizations like yours and certain individuals in government, uh, effort is being made to cut this out, to stop this problem with the witch camps. How long do you believe will this practice remain in use in Ghana? Well, it's, it's quite uncertain um, as to when uh, the belief and practice of witchcraft will end. What is certain is that there's been some progress made towards human rights sensitizations around witchcraft accusation and how the belief in witchcraft, you know, affects a person's human rights. I mean, a belief in human rights, how it violates 
and believe in witchcraft and how it violates persons' human rights. So there have been some progress made by human rights defenders, human rights activists, like Songtaba, like Action Aid Ghana, like a whole lot of other organizations that are adding their voice into 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 um witchcraft accusation issues. Um, apart from the general sensitizations that uh, we've been doing, uh, we've also tried in our best to do some gradual reintegration of these women who are who are who are uh, accused of witchcraft and are banished to live in in those camps. Um, so we've made progress around reintegrating women in communities of their choice. Um, about the disbandment, um, I think in 2014, uh, with a joint efforts, we're able to disband one camp, uh, that was the Bonyashe camp. In 2019, December, uh, with a joint effort, also with the Commission on Human Rights and the Department of Gender Action Aid and our other partner, we're also able to disband the, uh, um, the, um, Nabuli camp. And so we have four camps that are remaining. As we are doing the, re the, the gradual reintegration, we are hoping that government comes in to support the reintegration program so that we reintegrate the women gradually whilst we continue, continue to do the, the sensitizations at the community levels. You know, so these are the efforts we are making. And, and then also the government has also tried to put, um, some of the women under the leap, the livelihood um uh, empowerment uh, program uh, that that gives some cash remittances to women who are there and then also try to give the the women free nhis that is national health insurance um registration so these are some of the efforts that, that the government has made but there has been that continuous discussion as to how long we are going to keep these camps you know the important thing is the, the, the sensitization at the community level and, and also the engagement with, with, with traditional authority because in many parts that this accusation comes from, uh, they do not have police stations around them. You have to need to travel to, to a whole district capital to be able to get a police station or police protection. And so we cannot leave people like the religious, the traditional authority outside this conversation. And we need to do that continuously. You know, I haven't been to Ghana yet. Uh, I do have some friends there and judging just at the least from the WhatsApp statuses and Instagram stories, Ghana has a very rich and vibrant cultural heritage with uh, traditional religious beliefs being a strong part of that. In your opinion, how can then the people in Ghana come to a sort of consensus, a balance between restricting some outdated and perhaps inhumane practices while preserving the heritage of the people? Well, it's, it's quite a challenge um, because uh, what people believe in usually becomes very difficult to to take just a little time to 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 say they should discard but there's that realization i mean we having some allies within the traditional authority who thinks that look it's about time that certain cultural belief you know we 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 make away with it but like i said issues around people's belief is 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 very difficult to just do one-time radio discussion or sensitization for it to go. Um, there's, there's supposed to be that continuous discourse around that issue. And um, in as much as we all know that 
the, the country laws supersedes our cultural belief, there's still that gap, you know, as to who really is the custodian. I mean, an overlord in a, in a, in a kingdom, you know, sees that he has the authority over his jurisdiction, although there are national laws. So there's that gap that we need to fill about what we believe in and about how our belief, you know, does not conform with the human rights um, principles of our belief. And that is where we need to work harder to be able to ensure that um, we have that kind of continuous discussion. I mean, um, luckily for us, we having quite literate chiefs now who are coming up and uh, people who who seem to be quite traveled and, you know, can appreciate uh, issues around witchcraft accusation. But as chiefs also, they they also need to work within their their traditional uh, customs. And so there's, <laughs> I don't know what to say, but I think that there's some effort that are being made around that. We we have chiefs who um, pronounce that, look, when, when you suspect a witch, you have no right to beat the person, you know. And this is progressive for me. Unlike those days, uh, once you are suspected, you are either lynched, you know, you are banished immediately. But we have had some chiefs who have stood their grounds to make sure that Look, the youth doesn't take things into their own hands. The women that are accused of practicing witchcraft often have no way to contest these groundless accusations. In your experience, what do women who have moved to the witch camps, what do they actually believe in? The the societal uh, orientation. As girls, as women, we are always taught to be submissive. We are always told to listen to our elders. We are always told to be quiet when elders are speaking. And even to be quiet when our husbands uh, are admonishing us. And so when issues of witchcraft comes and it is being sent to the palace, which is a a whole male-dominated kind of setting, you have the chief and elders and community leaders all being male. That alone suppresses even your voice to speak up in your defense. All you do is to squat and listen and get your verdicts and then you leave. And so that societal orientation has impacted on women's voice such that they have very limited courage to speak about the very issues that even affect their their development about their life. And so sometimes when the verdict is that you should be sent away, there's very little a woman can do than to, you know, abide by by the verdict that you have been given. And so in such instances, she she just has to obey, obey, especially if she does not come from a very influential home. If she's if she doesn't have children who are quite educated, if she doesn't have, you know, siblings or people who can defend her, she has no reason but to go. And so that is the situation women find themselves within our sector. Can you recall any stories of how women um, had to end up living in these witch camps from your working experience? Yes, sometimes um, very false excuses. Uh, we have women who have who have to end up in the camp because somebody has seen the person in a dream. I mean, somebody has seen a woman in a dream. 
and that alone sends the pets, the woman to the camp. They believe that my children are progressing and my rival's children are not progressing. And so it is my fault. It's one of the reasons why women are sent to the camp. They believe that there's a sudden death in the community. And believe me, in the, um, in a more modern society, any sudden death would have been investigated at the, at the hospital. But no, we have to consult the oracles and the spirits to show who is responsible for that. And so there are so many reasons. I mean, somebody being sick, um, if there's any outbreak, for example, outbreak of cholera, CSM, anything, and people begin to die, then they have to find a reason for it. And many a time, these deaths lead our women to their camp. There are a whole lot, sometimes out of a fumsy argument, you know, and the person probably gets ill in the night and says, look, I had argued with this woman, especially the woman is quite elderly. I had argued with this woman earlier. In the recent, uh, I think in May, we witnessed two deaths that were associated with witchcraft accusation. You know, there was this woman who suffered a neck problem. And she asked the other woman to share with her some ointment or is it some medication? When she did by the night, I think the, the, the situation had worsened. And she said that, well, I took medication from this woman, you know, and because of that, she was threatened that if the lady doesn't get better, she's going to be held responsible, you know. And when the lady eventually died, they killed her, you know. So these are some of the reasons and many more that, 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 that women get accused of and, and, and some lead them into the into the camp and others they lynch them in 2020 you might have read of the madame equia dentist case some group of youth in the community says that they were not progressing and because they were not progressing they sought for the attention of the sorceress to see what could be the reason why they are not progressing their yields are not they are not getting good yields when they farm they are not getting job opportunities you know and and it eventually landed on some poor women, out of which Madame Equia Dentist lost her life. I mean, how can you blame an old, frail, very aged woman being responsible for your progress as a collective youth? And this is how deep-seated our beliefs in the spiritual matters are. So this and, and many reasons sometimes land women to the camp. And sometimes even women who are outspoken women who try to challenge the status quo within the, the, the communities, they'll find a way to exclude you. Well, sometimes I get emotional about talking about these things. No, of course, of course. No, this is a very complicated subject and uh, it, it's hard emotionally. I'm sorry that this has happened. Look, take your time, uh, but I'll just ask the question and whenever you feel that you're ready, then you can go ahead with the response, right? Women who find themselves in these witch camps are, as you said, marginalized and uh, marginalized by their communities and are forced to live in really terrible conditions and in complete isolation from the outside world as well. Thinking about it, what danger may be awaiting them back home if they ever decide to return? Well, so um, sometimes when we are doing the reintegration, we ask them. That's why we say we do reintegration in a community of choice. 
um, we ask them where they want to go. Sometimes um, if the, the community of her accusation, where she was accused from, if the person did not die and recovers, then she's a bit okay to come back. But if it was that the person died, then it's very difficult for her to come back, you know, except that she may be relocated in another community. Now, we have had one or two backlashes where women who have been accused and have been reintegrated have been reaccused because they have arrived and probably the next death occurred, you know, and people start to suspect them. So sometimes they don't even wait for people to, you know, to, 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 to come on them, then they run back to the camp, you know. So, um, for you to be sure of a successful or when you want to call something a successful reintegration is when you do a whole lot of engagement at the community where she's going back to be sure that her safety is, is, is guaranteed, you know. So that, that's some of the things that we do to, to make sure that where she stays and uh, where she's reintegrated, her safety is much guaranteed and she doesn't suffer reaccusation. Ms. Adam, once again, thank you for your time on AfroVerdict and for shedding light on the conditions surrounding the witch camps. It's really terrible, you know, to hear that such cases still occur. And I just want to remind people of the importance of not judging others, especially those that you aren't familiar with. Because for all you know, that person could be on the verge of suicide and your words could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Likewise, harsh words, judgment and exclusion could destroy the infinite potential that is within each and every one of us. The potential to become someone truly great, in fact. Take, for example, the mentioned uh, member of parliament, Francis Xavier Sosu. His story is truly inspiring from a homeless child to a member of parliament. Now, isn't that something? In fact, you know what? Let's actually speak to the very man himself. Mr. Sosu, thank you so much for joining me on Afro Verdict today. Let's start with a short background that you could maybe give to our listeners, you know, so they could get to know you a bit better. Thank you very much. Um, I'm happy to be here uh, today uh, and to have this uh, quick interaction with Spotlink. My name is Francis Xavier Sosu, uh, Member of Parliament for Medina Constituency in Greater Accra Region in the Republic of Ghana. Um, I am a human rights lawyer, an activist, and also uh, currently a PhD candidate uh, working on regional integration laws. And um, yes, I, I am an author and currently having about some seven books, uh, which include Love Lifted Me from the Street. That shares my story from how I grew up on the street, adopted into an orphanage and eventually becoming a lawyer. Then I have a book titled Homeless. Then I, I have one titled I Am the Street Lawyer. I have also a book titled um, 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 a Pro Bono Lawyer Without Honor and Guilty Until Proven Innocent. And all these books are on Amazon.com. Um, and these are books that shares inspiration about uh, the, 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 the limitations of our justice system and how I have sought to fight against injustice in various ways in Ghana before I was elected a member of parliament. All right. Now, uh, jumping back in time, 
Could you perhaps tell our listeners about your early childhood? How did you happen to find yourself in uh, quite a difficult situation? Well, I <clears throat> my my life began uh, somewhere in nineteen seventy nine, and my parents told me how my dad lost everything in nineteen eighty two when he was repatriated from Nigeria, uh, and uh, unfortunately. We have a very, very uh, marginalized, uh, we are a marginalized family because my mother was a victim of ritual slavery. And um, she lived all her life at a shrine serving the gods and never had any skill, never went to school, never learned a trade. And uh, she got married to my dad, who um, also didn't have any uh, skill and trade at the time. And... Um, the two of them gave birth to six of us. The firstborn became blind. She was not born blind. She only had measles and became blind. And our secondborn also dropped out of school. And I was the third. And because we were having a very difficult life as children, we spent almost all the time uh, as young children hawking on the street, uh, begging for money, and then also selling all kinds of items uh, on the street. Because of that, I didn't get a chance to start school early. Uh, the first time I had a chance to be in classroom was when I was eight years old because I used most of my early childhood days uh, selling on the streets. And so uh, when we began school at eight years, uh, I had to combine going to school with selling on the streets uh, so I can find money to be able to go to school until I got to the junior high school where we lost where we were living already. And so I became a complete street child, sleeping in the marketplace. And um, sometimes we slept in front of uh, shops and uh, kiosks in the marketplace. And uh, that continued until I finished the junior high school and got into the senior high school. At the senior high school, my story became worse because I was about dropping out of school uh, when my one of the teachers in the school recommended me to the village of orphanage. Uh, and after the orphanage reviewed my story and they did a social inquiry report on me, they uh, adopted me into the orphanage where they began to uh, now pay my fees, give me feeding. And it was only up until that time that I had a first time opportunity to have three square meals a day and uh, now living as a normal uh, human being with, with new opportunities. Sure. No, that's a hectic story, man. Um, I mean, the only thing I can think about is just being grateful, really, for for what we have, you know, uh, because there are people out there that have it way, way worse. And yeah, it's, it's really arrogant uh, of us to complain about the things that we don't have, whilst, you know, we have so much more than uh, than many others out there. Listen, but during this difficult time, uh, what were you inspired by? You know, what got you through your days? Well, I think that my inspiration uh, was from, um, I mean, observing people around me because when we, uh, like community that we're living in, uh, you have people with different levels of exposure. In the mornings, you see uh, young children uh, beautifully dressed in uniform going to school. And uh, you see yourself living on the streets and not doing the same. And sometimes you keep asking yourself, uh, why not you? Why can't you also go to school? 
And in the evening, we used to live in a compound house. You see people sleep on mattress where you have to sleep sometimes on the bare floor. And you ask yourself, why, why you and why can't you have a, a different life? And so there was this innate desire to fight against deprivation and to fight against poverty and also make something out of my life. And so uh, that drive was just a natural drive uh, which I had because I, I could uh, see the differences in, 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 in statuses, the differences in people's uh, life. And uh, I knew that uh, I could fight for a good life. And at a very early stage when I was in school, I seem to draw more inspiration when I go to school because my teachers always encouraged me. Um, if my uniforms were destroyed or tattered, they call me new uniforms. Sometimes they got me pencils and they got me pens. They got me uh, exercise books. So at a point in time, I became even a house help to one of my teachers because every weekend I go to stay with them and clean and, and do things. And they kept encouraging me that, you know, I would do well. So I suddenly realized that education was the tool to greatness and that if I could focus on education, something could come out of my life. So I spent a lot of time in school and very limited time outside. And during this time, uh, what were your dreams? You know, every child has a dream of becoming someone eventually. I know when I was a kid, I, I really wanted to go to space, man. It was, uh, it was something, well, kind of literally out of this world. But uh, yeah, I really wanted to become a, uh, uh, an astronaut, you know, fly in space. Not so much like go to the moon or whatnot, but just to be able to walk in outer space and uh, sit in a spaceship and do all those sciencey things. Um, and I even applied for an engineering degree back in South Africa, but well, you can see how that turned out. Uh, now I'm here speaking to you. So yeah, who did you dream of becoming? Did you ever imagine becoming a member of parliament? Um, you're right, absolutely not. <clears throat> Within the space that I found myself, um, um, becoming uh, a member of parliament would be a wishful thinking. It would never have occurred to me because the circumstances I grew in, I never met any influential person. I didn't meet any assembly member or any uh, body of uh, any huge importance. I set my immediate goals and that really impacted the way I think because um, I always... Uh, always want to look at my immediate goals and how I can make the best out of just the immediate things I'm doing. And so I, I had a very, very limited worldview at the time and uh, it was limited to survival. I mean, daily, daily life was about survival. How I survived the next day was my immediate goals. Um, I recall that it was up until, um, um, I mean, whilst I, I was, I was, I was, I was fighting for survival on a daily basis. I One of the principles I had was that um, the, the first rule of survival is self-preservation. So how I preserve myself so I'll be able to survive was basically what we were aiming at on a daily basis. In fact, growing up, um, it was about what you can get to eat for every, every day. If you eat today, you are, if, I, if you eat in the morning, you are thinking about how do you get the afternoon? How do you get the evening? Uh, water was a luxury. I recall how uh, I went looking for water. I was drinking water from somebody's tap and he used a hammer, you know, a wooden hammer, a mallet to hit my head. 
because um, they, they didn't understand why I was coming to drink from their tap. There were many times that you know, we, we jump over walls to the houses of people to so we can we can get fruits. You know, we can pluck fruits to eat, and sometimes dogs would chase us and, and all that. So I could never have envisaged becoming a lawyer or member of parliament within the circumstances I found myself. And you know, during this time, uh, was there a certain moment when? you had this sort of realization that you needed to change your life. Yes, I, 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 I saw a defining moment. Uh, there, there was a defining moment in my life when I, uh, it was in the senior high school because it was uh, in the midst of all these difficulties, I kept a very narrow uh, view and a very, very uh, direct view on, on, on survival on a daily basis. And in that space, I, I, I sought to make myself very relevant to uh, the group of people I find myself in. So right in the school, I was playing a role as the class captain, leading the class. Um, I, sometimes I was a bellboy. I, w- I was running all kinds of errands for every, <clears throat> everybody and every individual. I, I ran different type of errands for everyone. And so <clears throat> that approach made me serviceable. And, and so uh, even in school, I became a senior boys prefect, even though I was in the senior high school, even though I was still sleeping on the, on the streets and in marketplaces. And uh, when the, the village of Folk Orphanage came to adopt me and took me to the orphanage, that was when my worldview began to change because I began to see that, I mean, there is a possibility that you know, little acts of kindness can transform and change other people's life. And I haven't been on the street for many years and haven't seen the street life, the ghetto life, uh, people who I saw a lot of drunkenness. I saw people pushing drugs. Uh, sometimes were sent to go buy drugs. Um, how uh, the unlawful fights, how children were being abused, uh, either by defilement, female were raped at will. Uh, and beating and uh, unlawful fights and so on and so forth. I, 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 when I just oppose those growth patterns with the show of love that can shift the life of a person, I knew that if I could also go back and show love to other people, I could change their lives and things could be better for them. And so right from there, when I started a university education I began a project for disabled students and I volunteered to be picking persons with disability to class and back and just getting act of just act of little acts of kindness to people and supporting the most vulnerable people around me. And in doing so, I realized that there were higher platforms that I could uh, fight against injustice and, and fight for more equality and fight for inclusiveness, fight for uh, the right of the most marginalized and those who did not have. And that was how I, I found myself in the space of law because I, in the, when I was doing the first degree, I would always go to a law school and want to inquire about how I could become a lawyer because I knew that there was something I could do with the law. And when I finished the senior high school and went back to the orphanage during my national service, I met um, a, a, a missionary, a white missionary 
that said he wanted to sponsor me through law school. And that for me was a seal uh, on the what I call a passion or a desire at that time. And he then paid my way through law school until I was called to the bar in 2010. And, and as a way of uh, going back and fighting for other people, then I spent like the last 10 years of uh, my legal practice doing human rights, pro bono uh, lawyering, going from prison to prison, helping people um, and fighting for the rights of women, vulnerable children. And that was what I kept doing until I got elected uh, in 2021 to the Parliament of Ghana. Was there anyone in your life that had such a tremendous impact on you that you could say was a pivotal persona in your growth as a person? I think if there is anyone that uh, played a, a lead role in shaping my life, that would be the managing director of the Village of Orphanage, uh, Fred Asari. That's his name. Um, he he has played a, 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 I mean, a very key role um, in shaping my thoughts and uh, my approach and my leadership uh, uh, style because he was such a father uh, or to almost all fatherless people at the village of Hope at the time. Um, and then also um, Tommy Draining. Tommy Draining is one of the missionaries who also had huge impact on me because he was also such a servant leader. He was uh, also serving uh, voluntarily at the village of Hope Orphanage. And so most of all these inspirations that I got uh, were from people uh, who were from the orphanage and who uh, impacted hugely on, on the way I think and, and what I do with my life. And this I mean, sparked me into what I call um, a, a life of impact and a life of service. Look, you told us about your life as a child. What about uh, you as a young man? Did you face any unique challenges and who or what influenced your choice of career in the legal sector? Well, I think that some of the challenges I uh, faced as a young man that uh, brought about an interest in law career is um, the, 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 the naked uh, injustice that is found on the street. Street life is, is, is a very rough life. It, it's about survival of the fittest. And um, if you cannot fit, you'll be out. And um, all kinds of uh, indecent things happen on the street, uh, unlawful acts, um, and and the the my sense of justice uh, was more shaped by street life because I saw how people, I mean, strong, how the strong can easily violate uh, the most vulnerable. And and when I I thought of becoming a lawyer, one of the biggest goal is uh, to to ensure justice for all and injustice to none because I believe that was the only way we could build a better society and a more equitable society. Uh, if we were to leave the society in the hands of people who are strong and who are more resourceful, then they will always dictate the pace and to the detriment of the most vulnerable. Look, everybody has uh, you know, a favorite moment in their life and the least favorite moment in their life. So what was your most challenging part of uh, growing up or of your life in general, in fact? I think the most challenging situation I've ever faced is uh, what I call a deliberate um, um, 
a deliberate attempt by the General Legal Council of Ghana to stop my practice as a lawyer. Uh, obviously, because uh, a lot of people there do not um, appreciate the uh, the kind of fight you are involved in, fighting for the most vulnerable, uh, sometimes taking on uh, very crucial uh, cases that even sometimes you know your life is threatened because of the powerful people who are involved um, and uh, exposing corruption, exposing abuse of power, uh, and so on and so forth. And so uh, there was this deliberate attempt to uh, stop me from practicing law, where the legal counsel uh, suspended my legal practice for three years <laughs> for a very, 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 um, I mean, <laughs> ridiculous you know, reason. Uh, I mean, something I challenged and I successfully challenged in court and the court quashed the decision of the General Legal Council. And um, even when the decision was quashed, they refused to release my, my, my practice license uh, for more than one year before they released a practice license to me. And I consider this as very challenging because it was a peak of my legal practice. I mean, I was I was everywhere doing everything. And it was a time that I had over 300 pro bono clients, people who I was fighting for at different levels. And, and so such an intervention uh, uh, obviously, uh, you know, interfered with my practice and my fame and everything. But I'm glad that, you know, truth stands. I mean, if you fight against injustice and you fight against corruption, there are times that corruption tends to fight you back. <laughs> but uh, that is a life of activists. You just have to stand firm in, in your resolve and keep fighting. And, and when I fought, I got my license back and now I still continue to do my human rights practice, even though occasionally uh, my life is threatened. Uh, sometimes all kinds of things happen, but uh, I'm confident that once you are doing the right thing, uh, you have nothing to fear. And how would you describe the role your childhood has had on your career? as an advocate for human rights? Um, a lot, a lot, because I believe that um, my, uh, my, my, my <laughs> experiences as a, as a child has sharpened my, 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 um, my sense of fairness, uh, my sense of fellow feeling, my sense of justice, and uh, and it's what I saw growing up is what makes me abhor injustice in in any form and in any sense, and 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 it's part of the reasons why uh, I have so much courage and confidence to fight injustice wherever I see it. Whether it is a chief justice of Ghana that is uh, uh, abusing power or or abusing someone, whether he's the president of the republic or he's the attorney general or he's the um, is the, the police chief or the military chief, I go all out to fight against those things because I've seen it before. I mean, I, I've been on the streets. I've begged for money before I eat on the streets. So what more? I mean, what more can I lose at this stage? And so having seen all this deprivation and I haven't seen how people are struggling, people are, 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 are suffering, then, I, and I find myself in this space, uh, it kind of has a huge, 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 huge influence. In fact, there are many times I tell myself that 
there are times that I feel really tired, you know, as a human rights lawyer. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed. But the only reason why I keep going is because I say, look, there's still someone out there. There's a potential Francis Xavier out there. There's a potential child there who is still being violated. There's a potential person there who can be rescued. And, and I always believe that you cannot change the world uh, at, at a goal, but you can, you can change one person at a time. If you can impact one soul at a time, you can influence one at a time. If I was rescued and I am rescuing many today, it means that as many as I can rescue, we will be rescuing the world tomorrow. And so for me, it becomes a sense of, it's a passion. You know, that, that childhood experience has become a passion and a drive that keeps driving me to this goal. You know, I just spoke to two people that are involved in these witch camps in Ghana, and you have been the lead advocate for the anti-witchcraft bill in the Ghanaian parliament. So what prompted your interest in the subject to start off with? Well, again, because my, my, my parents were very fetish or coming from a fetish background, um, I have seen all kind of fetish practices. I've seen, I've been to the voodoo houses. I've seen what happens there. I saw how my mother was accused. Uh, my mother was uh, uh, was uh, giving us a slave girl to the shrine uh, because of this social cultural practices uh, known as the trokushi. Um, and these traditional practices, which include a witchcraft accusation, uh, uh, some of them are born out of belief. Some of them are born out of tradition and and practices and cultural practices. And so. Um, uh, I was of the view that any cultural practice, and in fact, that is what our constitution says, that any cultural practices that is inimical to people uh, must be abolished, uh, except that as a people or as a country, we've been struggling with the witchcraft accusation for the last hundred years. And um, uh, whilst uh, as a human rights advocate, I, be, I used to fight for the, the rights of these vulnerable women who were there, uh, in 2019, a 92-year-old woman was lynched because she was accused of being a witch. And I've seen people being accused of being witches and people chase them with knives and machetes and so on and so forth. So once I've seen all these things before and, and I have the opportunity to be at the table of policy, I had to now translate all the things that I, I have seen and I was fighting for using law as a tool and using the courtrooms and using the media as advocacy tool to now push legislative interventions that can bring about the change. So, yes, when uh, we introduced the bill, it was a bit challenging. Uh, I had to lead the team to the various rich camps. And when you go to these camps and you see how vulnerable women have been, have been subjected to all kinds of trauma, torture, and, and dehumanizing treatment, you would see that you have no choice that to come and push for this bill to pass. Indeed, when I came had challenges. I mean, there were times people were pulling us back, but uh, we kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And by God's grace, we have the bill passed, and which is currently awaiting presidential assent. Yeah, you know, Sputnik Africa has actually been covering the events around the story pretty well. But walking down memory lane, is there an achievement that you could describe as being the most significant in your whole life? I think abolishing the death penalty now would be the most important achievement for me because um, um, I came to parliament believing that uh, our death penalty laws are a cake and many people have been wrongly killed. Um, and so there was a need for us to do something about that. 
And and for me, uh, if you are an activist and you've been to condemn cells before, and you see a human being condemned to 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 death, uh, that is where you would it would dawn on you what kind of value you place on human life. And so for me, uh, the kind of value I, I think that human life is so valuable, and the, the value of the human life. Uh, is such that under no circumstance must life be taken. Under no circumstance must there be a state-sponsored life-taking. And so you cannot be a society that condemns killing and use killing as a means of punishment because that will be inconsistent with itself. You know, so uh, for me, uh, it excites me that the abolish death penalty I'm eternally grateful that we've criminalized witchcraft accusation. There are a number of very important pieces of legislation that I've still put before the Parliament of the Republic of Ghana. Um, one of one one also was the, the taxes on parks, which we've been struggling with for a very long time. I introduced a new bill, which has uh, led to even the government removing uh, uh, VAT as well as import duties on raw materials for uh, sanitary pass, production of sanitary pass in Ghana. And for me, I measure success by impact because the people are my goal um, and my approach is, is, is selfless leadership and my measure of success is the kind of impact we're making in, you know, on our society, the kind of impact we're making on people and how we can change the narrative of people by this little piece of work that we do. You know, since we're on the subject of uh, future, what are your plans for the next 10 years? Where do you see yourself? Well, my my hope is that um, I would be able to work very hard uh, to return back to parliament next year uh, as a member of parliament. I'm hoping that I will continue to pay attention to the little things uh, that we can do, uh, which I believe when you do well can have a global impact. And that has been my approach focus on the micro things that you can turn around and, and make them into ma- macro, you know, uh, things. And so I'm paying close attention to the constituency. Um, I have a number of projects running, Water for All Project, uh, Teachers Awards Project. I have um, Community Library uh, Empowerment Project, uh, Islam Projects, and assisting the community, just help the community become better. And I believe that um, it's one, 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 one day at a time. And once you continue to uh, better your community, I believe that that will naturally translate into um, higher platforms because when you're able to uh, serve well uh, at one level, then you are given opportunity to serve at other levels. But my goal is to focus on the, the micro level now and just get that necessary impact onto such a time that uh, it will become um, I mean, the opportunity will be there for me to serve in any other capacity. All right, look, well, my last question is going to have more of a general scope to it. As we all know, Africa has the youngest population on planet Earth. So what advice would you have for the young people out there who find themselves in a rather difficult situation? Well, I think that uh, Africa um, is a blessed continent. Uh, we have everything here in Africa. Unfortunately. Uh, due to uh, successive leadership problems. Uh, we have not been able to develop uh, our full potential. Uh, 
Uh, if you're a young man in Africa, I want to assure you that you don't need to give up on Africa. Uh, Africa remains our home, and Africa remains our home. Um, and no one will turn around the story of Africa. We must turn around our own stories. We can change our story. We can change the narrative. You know, so um, let's continue to believe in Africa. Let's believe in the beauty of Africa. Let's believe in the future of Africa. And uh, let's believe that we, the young generation, have the power to change Africa's story. Um, when you look at uh, uh, the integration process of Africa, right from 1910, uh, when we began with SACU, you come to 19. 19, where we start, we have the uh, East African, uh, I think, uh, 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 block before you come to the establishment of the uh, Organization of African Unity and then the AU. And you look at all the Africa's efforts, the Lagos uh, Plan of Action. You look at the EC Treaty, which is the Abuja Treaty. And recently, you see the uh, the Agenda 2063, which is the Africa that we want. Um, and you look at the uh, Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is connecting our 54 African countries, which is going to be the largest market ever before in the world and on the continent. It tells you that Africa has potential. All we need to do is to believe in this potential, work together, believing that we can turn around Africa's story. And you can be the beginning of that change. I can create a little change in Ghana. You can create a little change in Uganda. And I can create a little change in, 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 in Nigeria. Someone create a little change in Ethiopia. Some create, someone creates a change in Namibia. And together, we can lift Africa. Africa can rise again. Dear listeners, just a quick update on Russia's grain shipment to Africa. With the first shipment having reached Somalia on the 1st of December and Burkina Faso expecting its share on one of these coming days, the others are still en route to the remaining four countries, namely Zimbabwe, the Central African Republic, Mali and Eritrea. Now, Professor Frederick Ogola shares a few thoughts on the arrival of grain to Somalia. So I would just see that maybe Russia is trying to tell Africa that I'm your friend. And of course, uh, West will give more conditions before giving this aid some grants. But Russia has just said, I promise I have delivered. So what are the conditions given to Somalia? Because you see the sanctions that were given to Somalia is what made Somalia sunk into the so-called economic crisis they have. So when Russia comes and even give them grants and aid to support them in the, in the poverty or if you like the hunger situation, it means that uh, people will see Russia to be more friendly uh, to African countries like uh, Somalia more than the West would be because they would more insist on sanctions. You have to do ceasefire. Uh, they always have a lot of things attached. So Russia seems to be having less things attached, just responding to the humanitarian crisis. And I think for me, that will be a good welcome. And I will always say that developing countries are safer in the hands of their friends like uh, Russia, uh, India, uh, um, uh, China. It's better to do business with someone who takes you as an equal rather than the West who takes uh, Africans as smaller brothers and the bigger brothers who gives terms and conditions before dealing with Africa. And I think that's a welcome move. Thank you to all our guests for joining me on the Afroverde podcast. And like Mr. Sosu said, don't abandon Africa. It is a really beautiful, magnificent continent. 
and the opportunities only depend on whether we take them or not. Let's look out for each other and rather help each other rise than spend energy on putting people down. Let us empower each other for the good of the whole continent. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something new. If you'd like to give the episode another go, check it out on various podcasting platforms such as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, Deezer, Castbox, as well as AfriPods. Stay informed by checking out the Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, TikTok account, and other socials. However, for longer analyses, go ahead to our Sputnik Africa website. And to access all this information quickly and conveniently, make sure to download the Sputnik Africa application. Never stop searching for the truth and stay up to date. I'm your host, Victor Anakin, and it was my pleasure speaking to all of you. Until next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.